Let's commit ourselves to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful for all the blessings of life that you have given to us. You are the Father of lights, from whom comes every good and perfect gift. So many of us, Lord, can testify to the fact that you abide with us. You have never left us nor forsaken us. We have known your quiet, loving companionship every day of our pilgrim journey. And we thank you that your abiding love is stronger than the grave. When the moment comes for us to cross the Jordan, to pass from time into eternity, we will do so while held in our Saviour's mighty hand. We thank you, Father, that the Lord Jesus has brought life and immortality to light. Because of his resurrection from the dead, we can know that human beings can pass through death without loss of personal identity. We remember the Lord's words to the man dying beside him on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. And so, our Father, we thank you for uh, your goodness and your uh, kindness to us in saving us. Our Father, we thank you for answering our prayers about a vaccine for this terrible virus that has caused so much mayhem around the world. We ask that you would imbue our political leaders with wisdom and clarity of thought and energy as they now go about the huge task of distributing vaccines to the general population. We pray for the United States of America that your calming hand of providence would be upon a society that's in danger of boiling over into conflict. We ask that the US would return to calm equilibrium and that your people would behave in a Christ-like manner no matter how terribly they are provoked. Our Father, we pray for our church family. We ask for those who are ill or who are grieving that you would strengthen and comfort them. We pray particularly for our older members who are being cared for in residential homes, that you would protect them and still their fears. For this study, Father, we ask that you would help us to engage with your word and that it would build us up, that it would prepare us for a reality that lies ahead for all of us unless the Lord returns. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We are coming to the close of our short series on the book of Ecclesiastes. Tonight we're going to look at the start of the final chapter, which addresses the issue of old age and death. In the year 1820, an Anglican victor called uh, Henry Francis Light sat beside a dying man in County Wexford. As Light held the dying man's hand, he composed the words of the hymn we have just sung. And so let me remind you of the second verse. Swift to its close ebbs out life's little day. Earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away. Change and decay all around I see. O thou who changest not, abide with me. The hymn is a moving poem that reflects on perhaps the most sensitive pastoral issue that any Bible teacher can address. The moment when a Christian believer must face their own mortality. The teacher in Ecclesiastes ends his book with a poem about old age and death and it must rate as one of the most brilliant and poignant poems ever written. In the course of this study we will examine the teacher's poem and then we're going to lay it beside two passages found in the New Testament. So let's begin by reading Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and the first eight verses. And I'd be really grateful if you kept the text open before us, before you as, you, as we study it together. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. 
and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Now that amazing poem is divided into three stanzas. In verses 1 and 2, we see the final storm of life approaching. In verses 3 through 5, we feel the fear caused by the storm. And then in verses 6 to 8, we see the destruction caused by the storm. So the storm approaches, the storm brings fear, and the storm destroys. Now that's an interesting way to think about death, isn't it? A gathering storm that will not pass us by. You see, when we're young, when the skies darken, we know that one day the skies will part again. We go through tough times, but then the clouds disappear and the sun comes out to play once again. But this final storm is different. This time, says verse 2, the sun and the moon and the light and the stars are darkened and clouds keep returning after the rain. This is like the storm we read about in Genesis chapter 6, when God destroyed the world by flood. The language used here is the language of uncreation, of creation going in reverse, if you like. In verses 3 through 5, the word pictures change. And the teacher describes a great house, maybe a palace, uh, that has security staff and noble courtiers and, and cooks and aristocratic ladies. And we get to see how they react as the storm approaches. The security staff tremble. The powerful nobles bend over, bowed down by anxiety. A household that once buzzed with life and noise now stands silent. Nobody can even be bothered to prepare food anymore. Privileged women who used to stare out at the world and make sense of it can no longer engage with the world outside. So security has gone, normality has gone, and all that is left is anxiety and isolation. Now anyone reading this poem might scratch their heads at this point and ask, what does that mean? What does this great house represent? Well, as the poem progresses, we see the genius of the poet. The house represents the habitation of the human soul. The house is our body. The keepers of the house that tremble represent the weakened arms of an old man. The strong nobles who bow represent their legs. Verse 3 tells us that the grinders cease because they are few. That is obviously talking about the loss of teeth in older people. The dimmed windows refer to failing eyesight and the shut doors represent loss of hearing. Verse 5 talks about the white blossom of an almond tree and that is of course a picture of an old person's white hair. And the stanza ends with this pathetic picture of an almost dead grasshopper dragging itself along the ground. A, a creature that used to bounce and flit around with bewildering speed now moves like a snail. The emotion that pervades verses 3 through 5 is anxiety, fear, fear of the approaching storm. The old person is described as easily startled, 
afraid of climbing a ladder or afraid of going outside. In other words, the elderly man or woman becomes acutely conscious of their fragility. So let's just take a step back for a moment and ask ourselves, what is the point of this twin metaphor? Why sometimes describe a human being as the people who live in a big house and then at other times describe a human being as the house itself? Well, the teacher's point is that we aren't just a bit of mindless machinery that has broken down. The New Testament tells us that the body is inhabited by our soul. So as our bodies start to break down, the real person becomes anxious, wondering what will happen when the storm finally causes the house it lives in to collapse. So sometimes we say, my body is breaking down. But other times we think, I am breaking down. In the final stanza of the poem, verses 6 through 8, we see the complete destruction caused by the storm of death. The teacher uses two word pictures here uh, to describe what death is. First, he asks us to visualise a, a golden bowl suspended by a silver chain. And in the ancient world, that bowl would have been filled with oil to create a lamp that projected light into the darkness. But the silver chain breaks and the golden bowl falls and is crushed on the ground. So the light goes out. The second word picture is that of a pitcher that was lowered into a well using a, a flywheel arrangement. But the wheel breaks and the pitcher shatters. So no life-giving water is available. So when you put those two word pictures together, the teacher is telling us what he thinks happens at death. Light and life disappear, leaving only material stuff. So in the ultimate moment of destruction, we see dust returned to dust. The life that once animated the mortal remains of the dead returns to its creator. Now that is a bleak view of death. The teacher doesn't give a hint of any hope of personal immortality. Now godly men in the Old Testament, men like Abraham and uh, Job and David and Daniel, they all could discern the hope of resurrection and the promise of a glorious life after death. But the teacher in Ecclesiastes sees nothing up ahead but the grave. We sometimes sing, the sky, not the grave, is our goal. Well, the teacher only saw Sheol. Now, in the course of his investigation, he has made some important progress. The poem we're studying now is the counterpart to the poem at the start of chapter 1. And if you remember, that poem, we really could have entitled it The Circle of Life. It could have been written by a Buddhist, to be honest. But by the end of the book, the teacher believes in a creator who made us intentionally. And he also believes in God as the final judge who holds us to account uh, for how we have lived. So he has moved away from the worldview that we find in the religions of the East. He's moved from seeing reality as a circle of life and now realises that life is a story that has a beginning, a middle and an end. And that is progress. But it's still far from the hope and joy we find in the New Testament. Now, before we step into the New Testament, there is wisdom for us to glean from this ancient poem. The teacher has given us some really important insights into what lies up ahead. As we get old, we become more fragile. Our world gets smaller. We begin to feel isolated. And a profound sort of anxiety can gnaw away in our minds as we become ever more conscious that the storm of death will one day crush light and life. From our bodies. So the obvious question arises, given the inevitable trajectory of life, 
how should we prepare for old age? And the teacher has a profound insight for us. The answer, he says, is to remember your creator in the days of your youth. You need to prepare for the storm before it hits you. He says that in the opening verse of chapter 12. About 150 years ago, a pastor called James Miller wrote these words about old age. Old age is the harvest of all the years that have gone before. It is the barn into which all the sheaves are gathered. We are each in our earlier years building the house in which we shall have to live when we grow old. And we may, we may make it a prison or a palace. We may cover the walls with lovely pictures. We may lay up and store a great supply of provisions that will get us through the long winter nights. Or we may make our house very gloomy, he says. We may hang to the chamber walls with horrid pictures, covering them with ghastly spectres that look down upon us and haunt us. We may make beds of thorns to rest upon. We may have no fuel ready for winter fires. All old age is not beautiful. All old people are not happy. Some are wretched with hollow, sepulchral lives. So the point is this. How prepared are you for the deprivations of old age? What state is your mental and spiritual furniture in? When the teacher urges us to remember the Creator in our youth, I think he is giving that advice in a wistful, rueful tone because he wasted many years of his life in intellectual folly and hedonism. So he had nothing to warm his heart when old age came. Now is the time when you are young to build a warm, intimate fellowship with the triune God. Do it now so that when you're old and frail and the doorbell never rings, you can still enjoy fellowship with Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Now is the time when you are young to build a coherent biblical worldview into your mind so that you can know real security when the storm of death approaches. Now is the time when you are young to forge deep and abiding Christian friendships that will last into your final years. Now is the time when you are young to develop a deep knowledge of and a love for the scriptures. If you spend your youth and middle years slumped in front of Netflix or worse, then in old age your life will feel like a prison. Your mind will be four blank walls. So prepare for old age by building the right mental furniture into the home your soul will inhabit in old age. I said that in our, open, in our opening study that it's very helpful to contrast Ecclesiastes with the Sermon on the Mount. In each message, we find a king who is a teacher uh, who sets out their vision of reality. So let's now read this, how the Sermon on the Mount ends and then we'll supplement that with a reading from 2 Corinthians. So Matthew chapter 7, and we'll read verses 24 through 27. And the Lord Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And now over to uh, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 16, and we'll read right through uh, to 5, uh, verse 5. 
2 Corinthians 4 verse 16. And Paul says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. It's interesting that the Sermon on the Mount and Ecclesiastes both end with the picture of a house being attacked by a terrible storm. But the difference between the two houses is immense. In Ecclesiastes, the house is a human human being's material body, and the storm of death destroys it utterly, reducing it to dust. But when the Lord Jesus talks of building a house, he opens up a deeper understanding of the habitation of the soul. All through the Sermon on the Mount, we get this teaching about the unseen kingdom, the world of spiritual realities. And we participate in that kingdom in daily life because we are more than physical beings. We have an immaterial soul that will last forever. We have a mind that is not identical to the brain. And to use language from earlier, we develop mental furniture over time. In other words, we develop good character and capabilities and capacities. We learn humility and resilience. We come to know God and share experiences of life with him. We develop deep reservoirs of love for other people. We gain wisdom and knowledge. And the crucial point to remember is that all that furniture does not depend on the state of our physical brains. Now, that is a tricky concept to understand, so let me give you a completely crass illustration. Years ago, when you got your first laptop, you stored your documents and photos on the hard disk of your laptop. But in more recent years, we keep our data in something called the cloud. So my photos are stored locally on the hard disk of my PC, but they're also stored in network storage. Which is great, because if my computer falls down a mineshaft, my data is still secure in the cloud. Let me ask in all gentleness. What happens to personhood when someone's brain gets ravaged by Alzheimer's? What happens to all the capabilities and capacities they built up over a long life of service to God? Do the reservoirs of love and wisdom return to the dust because neurons stop firing? Does the seat of personhood just dissipate when memories in the brain are eaten up by disease? No, says the Lord Jesus. Build the habitation of your soul on the rock of obedience to God's word and no storm will ever destroy your personhood. Let me put it this way. You may be losing your memory. In the end, you may not even know who you are. But God has an excellent memory. And he knows exactly who you are. And one day, all the mental furniture that makes up you as a unique individual 
the unique personhood you have built up over your life will be established within a new glorified body, one that will never be destroyed by the ravages of old age. In 2 Corinthians, when Paul tells us that we have a building from God, he's not referring here to heaven. He's careful to say that the house he's talking about is not made with hands. Now, the Lord Jesus used exactly that language when he was talking about his own resurrected body. So Paul is telling us here that although the tent of our old earthly body may be destroyed, our real house, the habitation of the soul, is firmly established in the kingdom of heaven. Now, to explain why that is such a hopeful idea, let me revert to my crass computing analogy. Imagine that my old laptop lies crushed in a million pieces uh, at the bottom of a mineshaft. Well, I can receive a new laptop, and all my data that was stored in the cloud can be reinstalled on the new laptop, and nothing will have been lost. One day, we will dwell in a glorified, resurrected body, but you will still be you. Your personal identity will not have been lost through the ravages of old age and death. Now, needless to say, there are some theologians who would be horrified by my crass analogy. They would say that personhood is inextricably bound up uh, in body, soul and spirit, and that any attempt uh, to separate out the soul from the body is just Gnosticism. Well, it is true that we live, uh, while we live on this old planet, it's impossible to divide body, soul and spirit. That's true. But what did our Lord mean when he said to the dying criminal, Today you will be with me in paradise. Who is the you in that sentence? What does Paul mean when he says that he looks forward to a time when he's no longer in the body but with Christ? I think it is time that we stood for the old orthodox doctrine called substance dualism. We are made up of body, soul and spirit, but the soul is a real thing with structure and capacities. One aspect of the soul is our mind. And the mind is not identical to the brain. I would argue that consciousness resides in the mind and not the brain. Now, when the Bible talks about what it calls attitudes of heart, that perhaps is talking about neural pathways in the brain, encoded ways of thinking that cause us to think along the same set of tram lines every time. But the mind has the ability to forge new neural pathways in the brain because the mind is not identical to the brain. And that is such a comforting thought, believe it or not, for carers of elderly loved ones who suffer from dementia. You may have to watch your loved one's brain degenerate. You may see them lose their memory and their self-awareness. But the real person, with all the capacities and capabilities they built up over a lifetime, all those reservoirs and love and wisdom, the real person is carefully maintained within the fabric of the unseen kingdom. And one day, that real person will be able to express itself once again within a new glorified body. So we've considered the challenge of preparing for old age. And we've thought about the comfort of having an eternal habitation for the soul, a house for our personhood that can withstand the great storm of death itself. But just as I close, I want to think about the purpose of old age. To put it bluntly, why don't we just live our lives and then drop dead someday? without warning. What possible good could come from the long drawn out process of becoming ever more frail and infirm? Well, I guess there are many reasons, but one answer is given by the old pastor called James Miller, who I quoted earlier. He takes up the idea in Ecclesiastes of old age being like somebody living in a house. Do you remember he said, we are each building the house in which we will have to live when we grow old. And in one part of his address, uh, Miller said this, 
Many an ancient palace was built over a dark dungeon. There were marble walls that shone with dazzling splendour in the sunlight, but deep underneath all this luxurious splendour was the dungeon filled with its unhappy victims, and up through the iron gratings came the sad groans and moanings of despair. Miller gave this picture to help us understand old age. A palace built over a gloomy dungeon of memory, up from whose deep and dark recesses come voices of remorse to sadden or embitter every hour. What's the point? Well, sometimes the impending storm of death can force us to confront sin that has lurked deep within us for decades. Sometimes our souls have a dungeon and it can take the privations of old age for God to surface those wrong attitudes and deal with them. Maybe there's a deep-seated desire to control everything around you. Or maybe a dark seam of pride lurks at the roots of your psyche. For some, it may be the memories of people hurt in earlier life. Whatever lurks in your dungeon must be surfaced and dealt with before we get home to heaven. And sometimes God can use the sheer indignities and frailties of old age to deal with the deepest sins that lie at the roots of our personalities. Now, of course, let me be very careful to say, God can call some of his most precious saints to walk strange and difficult paths, even when their souls contain no hidden dungeons. In those cases, God is building moral capabilities and capacities, things like patience and kindness and gratitude, into a believer's soul. Now, I'm mentioning this idea of the dungeon, not to scold or berate anyone, but actually to encourage you. Sometimes you can feel that suffering like this is meaningless. What possible good could it do, we cry out. But God knows what he's doing with our lives. So we can use old age as an opportunity to pour the last few drops of life out to God as an offering. Paul says in 2 Timothy, days before he was executed, I am being poured out like a drink offering. So we can say, Lord, even in this difficult and humiliating circumstance, I am going to die well. I'm going to do my best to pour out the final few drops of my life as a sweet-smelling offering to you. And then I shall depart to my eternal reward. So our study is over. Now I'm conscious that some of our younger people uh, watching might be a little disappointed that I chose to approach the subject in this way, rather than looking at the issue of old age and death through the lens of the impending culture war over euthanasia. That is a hugely important topic for the church to address. You may know that a euthanasia bill is currently going through the Irish Parliament, and unless it is amended, euthanasia will be offered to citizens of Northern Ireland as well as to citizens of the Republic of Ireland. Euthanasia is one of the top five most strategic challenges Christians will face in the 2030s. Now, if you want to know more about that, and you can endure the sound of my voice for a little longer, listen to the latest podcast which Ollie Neal and I have recorded on that subject. In a few moments, we're going to sing one of this church family's favourite hymns, When Peace Like a River Attendeth My Way. We sang it at my wife's funeral. And I'll never forget my English work colleagues, nearly all of them atheists, shaking their heads afterwards at the sound of a thousand voices, singing with real Christian hope in the face of death. So we're going to sing it together once we've committed ourselves to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we have opened up some incredibly sensitive and difficult issues in this study. 
We ask first and foremost for those of our church family who can hear the storm of death approaching. Give them courage and take away their fear, we pray, Lord. Remind them of the truth that even if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And we remember the words of the Lord Jesus that such a house will stand no matter how fierce the storm. And so we say to you, O thou who changest not, abide with me. And then, Lord, we ask for our younger people that they would prepare for old age, that they would stock their minds so that their mental house will not be a bare prison in later life. We commit ourselves to you now, in Jesus' name. Amen.